In our time together last week, we uh, began working through those opening chapters of 2 Maccabees, and we saw there those, those two letters that were written to the Jews in Egypt, and the, uh, the attempt there was to, uh, to try to get them to recognize the legitimacy of the Jerusalem temple, and so to join in the celebration of the, the cleansing of the temple, which uh, goes down as the, uh, the festival of, of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication among the Jews. Um, we saw the compiler's prologue in the second half of chapter 2 and how he said that he was drawing from these, these five books of Simon of Cyrene and, uh, and trying, to, uh, trying to basically distill and compile and make, uh, make the account enjoyable to read. And then in chapters 3 through 5, we saw some of the degenerate state of things that were going on among some of the leaders in Judea and how some of them were trying to court the, uh, the secular powers that be so as to obtain uh, the, the office of the high priest and so on. There was some, some intrigue and, and infighting going on there over the office of the high priest. And uh, we saw one high priest, Jason, uh, who was ready to and actually did send money to uh, Tyre for a sacrifice to Hercules. Now, as we saw, those uh, who were carrying that, uh, that money decided to, uh, decided to spend it on warships instead of sending it as a sacrifice to Hercules. But nevertheless, it does show us the, uh, the high priest's willingness to, uh, to go along with idolatry. We saw how uh, that same Jason attempted to introduce Greek customs and sideline traditional and godly uh, practices of Judaism. And so things were not well among uh, the, the Jewish community. And it should not surprise us then that since the leaders were degenerate, that many uh, of the people were willing to follow them into their errors. And we also looked at uh, part of 1 Maccabees chapter 1 and saw its description of how Antiochus uh, began clamping down on the Jews, how Antiochus forbid the, the sacrifices of the temple, the observation of the Sabbath, uh, the practice of circumcision, and, and the possession of Scripture. And then First uh, Maccabees 1, verse 54, described how on the 15th of Kislev, which is uh, the 6th of December in, in our terms, in the year uh, 167 B.C., the, the way that they were reckoning the years, they call it the 145th year. So I don't know if they're starting from Alexander the Great or starting from the beginning of the Seleucid Empire, where their starting point is, I haven't track that down. But anyways, they, they reckon it as the 145th year. In our terms, we call it 167 B.C. And First Maccabees 154 says, They erected a desolating sacrilege upon the altar of whole burnt offering. They turned the temple of the Lord into a temple of pagan worship. And uh, the Jews who would not go along with the pagan program then were killed. And... First Maccabees 1, 52 and 53 sets up a contrast with First Maccabees 1, 62 through 64. And it tells us about many Jews who were kind of on both sides of the divide. Many of the people, everyone who forsook the law, joined them and did evil in the land. They drove Israel into hiding in every place of refuge they had. So these were, these were the bad actors. There were many in Israel who were willing to, to go along with the pagan program and to, to basically kind of force uh, the, the true Israel out into, uh, out into hiding. It says they drove Israel 
into hiding in every place of refuge in the land. And then there's a, there's a contrasting group of many. So you've got many who are bad actors, and then you've got another group of many who show up ten verses later, First Maccabees 1. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. And very great wrath came upon Israel. So we've got two groups here, the many and the many. Many were wicked, went along in the wickedness. Many stood firm and chose to die rather than to sin. And it is to a couple of striking accounts of those who chose to stand firm rather than to sin that we are going to turn today. And so we're going to be focusing on the issue of martyrdom, particularly in 2 Maccabees uh, chapters 6 and 7. Let me first just read a, uh, a quote from, uh, from Heinrich uh, Bullinger. And uh, Bullinger says this. He says, Antiochus Epiphanes did what he might to have polluted the holy bodies of the Maccabees with the use of unclean and forbidden meat. But they, choosing rather to die than by living to be defiled did by dying overcome the tyrant and could not be compelled. And verily, it is a thing received and approved among all professors of sound religion that death and all extremities whatsoever must sooner be tasted than anything committed which is by nature filthy and repugnant to religion. And so, uh, in other words, uh, Bullinger is uh, pointing to these, uh, these martyrs and saying they, they did the right thing. This is what the true profession of religion should lead us to, is to, to choose death rather than to, uh, rather than to compromise with anything that is necessarily sinful and wicked. So um, in, the, in the handout, I've given you uh, a few excerpts of the text. Um, at, uh, at 10 point font, I wasn't able to fit all of chapters 6 and 7 uh, onto, uh, onto one sheet front and back. And so I've, I've only given you some excerpts. I'll be reading uh, some of what you see here and some of what you don't see here. But first, let's, uh, let's kind of work through uh, the first 11 verses of 2 Maccabees 6. And this, uh, this sets up the, the situation uh, that leads to the martyrdoms. So uh, not long after this, the king sent an Athenian senator to compel the Jews to forsake the laws of their ancestors and no longer to live by the laws of God, also to pollute the temple in Jerusalem and to call it the temple of the Olympian Zeus and to call the one in Gerizim, Gerizim is uh, in Samaria where the temple of the Samaritans were, and to call the one in Gerizim the temple of Zeus, the friend of strangers, as did the people who lived in that place. Harsh and utterly grievous, was the onslaught of evil, for the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts and besides brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. The altar was covered with abominable offerings that were forbidden by the laws. People could neither keep the Sabbath nor observe the festivals of their ancestors nor so much as confess themselves to be Jews." On the monthly celebration of the king's birthday, the Jews were taken under bitter constraint to partake of the sacrifices. And when a festival of Dionysius was celebrated, 
they were compelled to wear wreaths of ivory and to walk in the procession in honor of Dionysius. At the suggestion of the people of Ptolemais, a decree was issued to the neighboring Greek cities that they should adopt the same policy toward the Jews and make them partake of the sacrifices and should kill those who did not choose to change over to Greek customs. One could see, therefore, the misery that had come upon them. For example, two women were brought in for having circumcised their children. uh, They publicly paraded them around the city with their babies hanging at their breasts, and they hurled them down headlong from the wall. Others who had assembled in caves nearby in order to observe the seventh day secretly were betrayed to Philip and were all burned together because their piety kept them from defending themselves in view of their regard for that most holy day. And, uh, and so the situation is, is getting dire. They uh, could not confess themselves to be Jews. They uh, were basically being forced to, uh, to participate in these pagan sacrifices. And one of the, one of the things that, that we'll see here as we, as we continue on, we see a hint of it here in uh, verse 11 there, was that uh, sometimes the Jews would be attacked on the Sabbath. And this became, this became a kind of a question for them. If, if we're attacked on the Sabbath, are we allowed to fight back? And uh, these people here chose not to do so. And uh, we'll see how uh, in 1 Maccabees the account is given of some who chose to do otherwise. And so, uh, so that's, the, that's the situation, broadly speaking. And then in uh, verses 12 through 17... The writer kind of steps back and gives us I, what I think is a very helpful theological uh, analysis of the persecution of God's people. I think what he says here broadly was, was true for the Israelites in those days. And I think what he says there uh, can broadly be applied to, uh, to Christians as well. I think this is a pretty, pretty helpful uh, theological perspective on the issue of persecution. So this is 12 through 17. Now I urge those who read this book not to be depressed by such calamities, but to recognize that these punishments were designed not to destroy, but to discipline our people. In fact, it is a a sign of great kindness not to leave the impious alone for long, but to punish them immediately. For in the case of the other nations, the Lord waits patiently to punish them until they have reached the full measure of their sins. But he does not deal in this way with us, in order that he may not take vengeance on us afterwards when our sins have reached their height. Therefore, he never withdraws his mercy from us. Although he disciplines us with calamities, he does not forsake his own people. Let what we have said serve as a reminder. We must go on briefly with the story. And that's a very helpful explanation of persecution. I love how he says there, it's designed not to destroy, but to discipline. And he says, therefore, he never withdraws his mercy from us, though he disciplines us with calamities. He does not forsake his own people. And I think, I think this is the very thing that we find in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, Lord willing, if we have the time, we'll be looking at some passages, uh, among which is, is Hebrews chapter 12. And uh, it reminds us that, that God disciplines us as, as sons and that, that he deals with us in a special way as sons, as those who are, who are part of his, his family. And uh, just to... Uh, 
uh, just to, to touch on this issue of God uh, disciplining us for, for our sins and, and being merciful to us, um, one, of the, uh, one of the French Huguenots who uh, was subjected to, uh, to suffering and, and persecution when, uh, when Protestantism became illegal in France uh, beginning in 1685, wrote a, wrote a journal and he, he left it for, for the benefit of his children afterwards. Some of, some of his children were, uh, were, were teenagers or getting close to grown when, uh, when the persecution was, was ramping up. And some of them were, were still very young. He had a, had a big family and, and sometimes he had to hide different ones, uh, ones of his children with, with different families who would keep them safe. And so it was a, a very trying time. But in, when he, when he cl- closed uh, this this prefatory letter to his children, you can hear some, some echoes of him talking about discipline in kind of the same, the same way that the writer here in Second Maccabees uh, talks about. I'm not saying that he was necessarily influenced by Second Maccabees, but nevertheless their, their perspective was the same. He says, in short, each of you for himself will discover ample reason for admiring and adoring the wise providence of God in the means which he employed to snatch you from dangers of the existence of which several of you were too young to be aware. Here then, let me bless his holy name for all the mercies shown to me and mine, and let me conjure you, dear children, to manifest your gratitude by a life consecrated altogether to his service, even to glorify him in your bodies and in your souls. We have deserved his wrath by neglecting his word, and he has corrected us in mercy. He chastiseth whom he loveth, And I pray him ardently to give us grace, not to despise his chastisements, nor to faint when we are rebuked of him. May he guide us by his counsel and afterwards receive us into his glory. And so you see this this humility here that's that's characterized by by the writer here of 2 Maccabees and by this Huguenot who left behind this this journal, recognizing that, that God chastises us, and he does so justly because of our sins, and nevertheless, we are to, to praise him, to worship him, and uh, recognize that, that even in these things, he still has corrected us in his mercy. Um, any, any questions questions so far on uh, just kind of the, the opening situation there in, in 1 through 11, or kind of the, uh, the theological perspective on persecutions that's uh, laid out there in 12 through 17? Any, anything? All right. Um, I didn't give you the uh, the text for the martyrdom of of Eleazar the scribe, but I, I would like to go ahead and, and read that for you. And so this is uh, one of the particular martyrdoms that is described for us here. Eleazar, one of the scribes in high position, a man now advanced in age and of noble presence, was being forced to open his mouth to eat swine's flesh. But he, welcoming death with honor rather than life with pollution, went up to the rack of his own accord, spitting out the flesh, as men ought to go who have the courage to refuse things that it is not right to taste, even for the natural love of life. Those who were in charge of that unlawful sacrifice took the man aside because of their long acquaintance with him and privately urged him to bring meat of his own providing, proper for him to use, and pretend that he was eating the flesh of the sacrificial meal that had been commanded by the king. And so that by doing this, he might be saved from death and be treated kindly on account of his old friendship with them. 
and you, so you can kind of can kind of see what they're what they're telling him to do. Um, it's you know you you bring you bring your own meat, you bring something kosher, and just just eat it and just act like you're going along, just just pretend, and and this will this will pass, and you know you'll be you'll be fine. But let's listen to his response: making a high resolve, worthy of his years and the dignity of his old age and the gray hairs that he had reached with distinction, and his excellent life even from childhood. And moreover, according to the holy God-given law, he declared himself quickly, telling them to send him to the grave. He says, such pretense is not worthy of our time of life. He said, lest many of the young should suppose that Eleazar in his 90th year has gone over to an alien religion. And through my pretense, for the sake of living a brief moment longer, they should be led astray because of me, while I defile and disgrace my old age. For... Even if for the present I should avoid the punishment of men, yet whether I live or die, I shall not escape the hands of the Almighty. Therefore, by manfully giving up my life now, I will show myself worthy of my old age and leave to the young a noble example of how to die a good death willingly and nobly for the revered and holy laws. When he had said this, he went at once to the rack, and those who a little before had acted toward him with good will now changed to ill will because the words he had uttered were, in their opinion, sheer madness. When he was about to die under the blows, he groaned aloud and said, It is clear to the Lord in his holy knowledge that though I might have been saved from death, I am enduring terrible sufferings in my body under this beating, but in my soul. I am glad to suffer these things because I fear him. So in this way he died, leaving in his death an example of nobility and a memorial of courage, not only to the young, but to the great body of his nation. And so this, uh, this was a man who, who recognized what was, what was at stake here. He could, he could either kind of try to play the game as he was, uh, as he was advised to do and he saw there's, there's consequences in that. One, he'd have to stand before God. Secondly, he's setting a bad example for everybody else. If, if he fools some people, he might fool everybody and even fool the younger Jews into thinking that, that, this, uh, that this man, who'd been a, a, apparently a godly Jew from childhood up to age 90, had took, taken the leap and had gone over to the pagan sacrifices. And he says, why would I, why would I do all of this for just... Just a little bit more time to live. He's 90. He recognizes he's, he's going to be dying very soon anyways. And, uh, and so he dies and he says, I gladly suffer these things because I fear him. That's good. Um, and then in chapter 7 is, uh, this might be, I'm not sure, but this might be maybe the most famous portion of uh, of Second Maccabees, and and I think, and, and others as well, uh, seem to think that that this is what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about, where uh, where he says that some refuse to be delivered so that they might gain a better resurrection. And so, in John Gill's uh, commentary on on that passage in Hebrews eleven, he he quotes here from from Second Maccabees seven to, to say that this is this is what was going on here, and so. Um, again, I haven't, I haven't given you the, the full text of it. I'll, I'll start reading up in, up in verse 1, and then uh, you'll, you'll be able to see what's going on by the time we get to, uh, to verse 20 there. Um, so 
he says, it happened also that seven brothers and their mother were arrested and were being compelled by the king under torture with whips and cords to partake of unlawful swine's flesh. One of them, acting as their spokesman, said, What do you intend to ask and learn from us? For we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our fathers. The king fell into a rage and gave orders that pans and cauldrons be heated. They were heated immediately, and he commanded that the tongue of their spokesman be cut out and that they scalp him and cut off his hands and his feet, while the rest of the brothers and the mother looked on. When he was utterly helpless, the king ordered him, uh, ordered them to take him to the fire, still breathing, and to fry him in a pan. Smoke from the pan spread widely, but the brothers and their mother encouraged one another to die nobly, saying, The Lord God is watching over us, and in truth has compassion on us, as Moses declared in his song that bore witness against us, uh, excuse me, against the people to their faces when he said, and he will have compassion on his servants. And um, let me just find the reference, but they're, they're alluding there to, uh, to Deuteronomy 32, verse 36, where, uh, just, this is just before the, the death of Moses, where, uh, where Moses, uh, Moses says to the people, For the Lord will vindicate his people and will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. And uh, so they uh, recognize that, that God is watching over them and will have compassion on them. And they're thinking back to, to Deuteronomy in this trial. And so I'll keep reading here. After the first brother had died in this way, they brought forward the second for their sport. They tore off the skin of his head and the hair uh, with the hair and asked him, Will you eat rather than have your punished, body punished limb by limb? He replied in the language of his fathers and said to them, No. Therefore he in turn underwent tortures as the first brother had done. And when he was at his last breath, he said, You accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. After him, the third was the victim of their sport. When it was demanded, he quickly put out his tongue and courageously stretched forth his hands and said, I got these from heaven, and because of his laws, I disdain them, and from him I hope to get them back again. And as a result, the king himself and those with him were astonished at the young man's spirit, for he regarded his sufferings as nothing. When he too had died, they maltreated and tortured the fourth in the same way. And when he was near death, he said, One cannot but choose to die at the hands of men and to cherish the hope that God gives that, excuse me, and, and to cherish the hope that God gives of being raised again by him. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. Next, they brought forward the fifth and maltreated him. But he looked at the king and said, Because you have authority among men, mortal though you are, you do what you please, but do not think that God has forsaken his people. Keep on then and see his mighty power when you and your descendants are in torment. After him, they brought forward the sixth. And when he was about to die, he said, Do not deceive yourself in vain, for we are suffering these things of our own account because of our sins against our own God. Therefore, astounding things have happened, but do not think that you will go unpunished 
for having tried to fight against God. And then uh, uh, that's the end of verse 19. And so uh, you've got the text there from verse 20 uh, on down for a ways. The mother was especially admirable and worthy of honorable memory. Although she saw her seven sons perish within a single day, she bore it with good courage because of her hope in the Lord. She encouraged each of them in the language of their ancestors. Filled with a noble spirit, she reinforced her reasoning, her woman's reasoning with a man's courage and said to them, I do not know how you came into being in my womb. It was not I who gave you life or breath, nor I who set in order the elements within each of you. Therefore, the creator of the world, who shaped the beginning of humankind and devised the origin of all things, will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of his laws. Antiochus felt that he was being treated with contempt, and he was suspicious of her reproachful tone. The youngest brother being still alive, Antiochus not only appealed to him in words, but promised with oaths that he would make him rich and enviable if he would turn from the ways of his ancestors and that he would take him for his friend and entrust him with public affairs. Since the young man would not listen to him at all, the king called the mother to him and urged her to advise the youth to save himself. After much urging on his part, she undertook to persuade her son But leaning close to him, she spoke in their native language as follows, deriding the cruel tyrant. My son, have pity on me. I carried you nine months in my womb and nursed you for three years and have reared you and brought you up to this point in your life and have taken care of you. I beg you, my child, to look at heaven and earth and see everything that is in them and recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. And in the same way, the human race came into being. Do not fear this butcher. But prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death, so that in God's mercy I may get you back again along with your brothers. While she was still speaking, the young man said, What are you waiting for? I will not obey the king's command, but I obey the command of the law that was given to our ancestors through Moses. But you who have contrived all sorts of evil against the Hebrews will certainly not escape the hands of God. For we are suffering because of our own sins. And if our living Lord is angry for a little while to rebuke and discipline us, he will again be reconciled with his own servants. But you, unholy wretch, you most defiled of all mortals, do not be elated in vain and puffed up by uncertain hopes when you raise your hand against the children of heaven. You have not escaped the judgment of the almighty, all-seeing God. For our brothers, after enduring a brief suffering, have drunk of the ever-flowing life under God's covenant. But you, by the judgment of God, will receive just punishment for your arrogance. I, like my brothers, give up my body and life for the laws of our ancestors, appealing to God to show mercy soon to our nation, and by trials and plagues to make you confess that he alone is God, and through me and my brothers to bring to an end the wrath of the Almighty that has has justly fallen on our whole nation." The king fell into a rage and handled him worse than the others, being exasperated at his scorn. So he died in his integrity, putting his whole trust in the Lord. Last of all, the mother died after her sons. Let this be enough, then, about the eating of sacrifices and the extreme tortures. And so those are uh, just 
some of the specimens. I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were many others that, that were killed and, and put to death. But, but again, you see the, uh, the remarkable perspective of these, these brothers there. They're looking, looking forward in hope to the, the resurrection. Resurrection certainly taught in the Old Testament. Passages uh, like, uh, like Job, where Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day uh, he, will, he will stand upon the earth. Uh, passages like uh, like Daniel Daniel twelve two, where uh, the Lord uh, promises the the resurrection of both the righteous and the the unrighteous, and uh, these brothers these brothers believed it. They believed that they had had their lives from God, and that God would give them life in the the resurrection to come. And they also didn't have a poor pitiful me, poor pitiful us attitude toward their suffering. They recognized. Our nation has sinned, we're caught up in the judgment, God's disciplining us for it, and uh, we have to still trust Him and, uh, and, and walk with Him and suffer for Him nonetheless. So any, any comments or, uh, or questions, we're kind of going to try to delve in our remaining time into this, uh, this issue of uh, call to suffer, um, but any, any questions or comments before we, before we get into that? Jamie? Yeah. Mm, yeah, I um, my t- my tendency would would be to think that it's it was probably it's probably okay for them uh, to defend themselves on the Sabbath. I mean, if you if you look at uh, I mean, I don't know for sure how the uh, how all of the battles, the conquest of, of Canaan were fought, and like when uh, when uh, for instance Joab was. Uh, besieging Rabbah of of the Ammonites in like Second Samuel eleven and twelve. You know when when that stuff was was going on, I would be a little bit surprised if if uh, you know if the, if the Ammonites made an attack on the Sabbath and Joab said, "Well, all right, boys, we gotta gotta sit this one out today." But I, I don't I don't know how that how that would have would have gone. And, and plus the the issue of of Jericho, right? They they march around the city seven days. I don't know. I don't know what day they started on or what day they blew the trumpets and the walls fell down, but one of those days would have been the Sabbath, right, if, if they're doing this for, for seven days straight. And so my tendency uh, is to think that, uh, that, that those who, who would not defend themselves on the Sabbath day were, were probably taking an overly, overly rigorous view of the Sabbath would be, uh, even, even, for, even for Old Testament standards of the Sabbath, was, was probably a, an overly rigorous view and um, as Jesus said, you know, which, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to, to save life or, or to kill. And um, certainly self-defense is, is the saving of life. And, uh, and so that's kind of my, my, my thought there. I think we'll uh, probably kind of delve more into that specific incident, uh, Lord willing, next time. So it'll be two weeks from today. But, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's a good, good question. Any, you had a, a second? Yeah. Right. I guess I wonder if there's ever a time, you know, I feel like this happened in 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My my tendency is to think that that he did that he did the right thing. Um, I know that, uh, and I don't I don't know the the intricacies of it, but I know that in I think in the uh, in the Decian persecution under under the Roman Emperor Decius, this would have been about about two fifty to two fifty eight. Uh, there were a couple of either either a couple of waves of persecution or maybe one kind of intense uh, wave of persecution. So. I, my memory is that the Roman Emperor Decius basically said the, the reason why things in in the Roman Empire are going so bad is we've neglected the ancient gods, and so he wanted to, to make Rome great again, if you will. And uh, the way the way he thought to do that was to return to the the ancient worship of of the pagan gods, and that meant uh, compelling uh, Christians to uh, to do that to to give uh, to make sacrifice, and so um, and. And so this this opened up kind of a kind of a can of worms for the church because they've got to they've got to learn to deal now with what do you do with with somebody who in an intense time of persecution caved in made the sacrifice and you know weren't even trying to fake anything they just they just did it you know they offered the pinch and said Caesar is Lord or or uh, or sacrifice to, to whatever whatever God and then when the persecution's over they said yeah we're we're sorry we repent. Let us back into the church, and this was this was the question of of the lapsed those who had lapsed in their faithfulness under persecution, and um, and there were you know kind of some some different some different takes on how to respond to that, and then a second thing that, that some Christians would have done was they would have basically obtained a certificate that said that they had sacrificed to the gods and they and they actually hadn't, and so um, and so I don't. I don't know the, the history well enough to know how how the church responded to to those people who had you know who had kind of connived and they didn't actually sacrifice but they tried to legally get out of it because they had obtained a false statement that they had done it. Um, yeah, I my my tendency is to think that 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 that's not that's not particularly helpful. That that uh, I mean. Um, I guess I, I guess I'd be open to, to discussion and hearing some some reasoning about it, but but as a as a general sense of things, my, my sense is that, that this guy here, uh, Elazar the scribe, did did what was right. That he he recognized that if that if he tries to just kind of just kind of massage things and and satisfy his own conscience, that he's not actually doing it, but he's putting on like he's doing it, and he's in that sense deceiving not only. Not only the powers that be, but also those who are watching, and I, I think that, I think that's that's really dangerous. And I think he was right to to recognize that, um, that saving saving my own skin is not not nearly so valuable as setting a godly example for for the youth and, and those who are those who are coming behind me. And so, I my tendency is to think that any kind of connivance like that to uh, to kind of fake uh, fake out the the powers that be and 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 you know potentially to deceive other people or make them think that you're that you're compromising is to think that that's 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 not that's not that's not helpful. Um, does that does that make sense? Do you have any any thoughts on that or? <laughs> oh yeah! Oh yeah! It's not. 
<laughs> get you a, get you a false vaccination paper. Get a jab of water or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. Can we stop? Let's 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 talk about that. Yeah, yeah. The the vaccine. I'm sitting here and like, this is really shaking me. Like these passages are unbelievable. Yeah. And I think we should be like, COVID. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I know. I know some people like, but I'm sitting like, this is really the struggle with this, right? Yeah. uh, Yeah. This is unbelievable. Yeah. This uh, the suffering and just thinking about like Fort Ten Boom and the hiding place. Yep. And well, it, maybe just like as a side note, really quickly, like they did deceive the government. Like, like they were very active in their deceit, and that was, was, was a different way. Right, 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 right. right. See, yeah. There's like these groups of people in that book where some of them, like, if the government said, "Are you like, is there a junior house?" They would just say yes uh-huh. because yeah. they didn't, their conscience wouldn't let them. Right. So right, right, right. Others of them. Yeah. So I was kind of, and she didn't condemn or it's, it was kind of like she kind of acknowledged that everyone has their has their conscience, yeah, right? Right. Um, right. But maybe that was a side note. But right. And, and just thinking about that and thinking about this, like I'm, I'm even like sitting here thinking, like, why in the world do we even expect that we would have any anything nice yeah. or or yeah in, in in this life? Like, yeah. I feel like if we're gonna look at this and listen to this passage and think about these other people in history, like. If yeah. if the if the only thing that actually matters is eternal things, yeah. and God lets His people go through these things, yeah. uh, how do we even like? How, I don't even know how to process this actually. Like, mm-hmm. how do I, how do I sit here and I think to myself, I live in the, in the United States, and I think about I'd like to I'd like to buy a house that's closer to my kid's school, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, or I'd like to spend money in this way, and. Uh, and, and, I, and I think, okay, well, God has blessed me in this way or that way. Yeah. And then I read this, and I'm just yeah. like, well, how is God even here? Kind of thing. And I, yeah. obviously, right. if you hear their spirits, right. it's there. It's, it's incredible, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, very clearly, the Holy Spirit is, yeah. is upon these people. It's, right. it's amazing. Right. But just like this tension and how do we... Yeah. How do we even process this? Yeah. So yeah, it's a good. Like, that's where I'm at. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's a good that's a good good question. So, um, uh, my mind my mind goes to goes to Ecclesiastes and um, and so so obviously in in Ecclesiastes you know Solomon kind of explores the the vanity of life and you know gets gets to the end the end of the book. And he says, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment and everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And so, and so obviously this is, this is the conclusion is, as far as you know, looking, looking at life and its, its transitoriness. And so much of Ecclesiastes describes this guy as basically you know, on, the, on the hamster wheel trying to, trying to get ahead and finds that you know, I, I seek for pleasure and satisfaction here. It's, it's vanity. I look over here. It's, it's vanity. It's nothing. And, and so, and so that's, that's the ultimate. But if you, if you read the text carefully, he does, he does have some, uh, some asides in, in the text of Ecclesiastes about about how to process earth, earthly life. And so obviously, obviously the goal is to fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. But it doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that life here is completely uh, and entirely void of, of meaning and that we should shun uh, 
everything. And so, and so this is, this is Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20. He says, Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat and drink and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of life which God has given him, for this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God, for he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. And so, uh, and so I think that on the one hand, the, the existence that Solomon's describing there in 5, 18 through 20 is a, is a kind of a far, far stretch removed from, from these guys here in 2 Maccabees 7 who are being fried alive and getting their hands cut off and their tongues cut out and, and all of that. And I think that we've got to, got to recognize that God providentially deals with different people in different circumstances and that sometimes God gives riches and gives people a job that they enjoy and the, and the ability to enjoy those things. And that's to be accepted and, and rejoiced in. It's not, it's not something that is inherently bad or evil, but, but this, he says, this is, this is the gift of God. Um, uh, he has empowered him to, to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. And so, and so we shouldn't, I don't think we should, uh, you know, stay back and say, well, that earthly life completely doesn't matter. I shouldn't look for any good or enjoyment here because that's that's not really what uh, what scripture teaches at all. Again, first uh, first Timothy six is is another passage that I continually go back to on the issue of of earthly wealth and earthly satisfaction and those sorts of things. Um, so this is first Timothy six, seventeen to nineteen. Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So those those two things are out. No conceit, no hope on riches but on God. Fix your hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And so you've got, you've got both, both lives going on there, the life here and the life there. The life here, sometimes God provides riches, God uh, provides everything for us to enjoy, but we're supposed to Hang on to these things kind of kind of loosely again in the the First Corinthians six kind of kind of way. I'm sorry, First Corinthians seven kind of way where the Lord uh, or where Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaks about uh, those who who have riches should behave as if they did not have them. In other words, kind of kind of loose handedly, just recognize that if God gives us these things, we rejoice in them, we use them, seeking to glorify Him with them. If God takes them away, we. Uh, we recognize that they all belong to God, and He can do what He will with them. And so there's, uh, so there's, there's a legitimate pleasure and rejoicing in in good things, and um, you know, seeking to buy a house closer to where your kids go to school is not a is not a bad thing. But there's to be no conceit and no hope in the riches, but rather in God. And we're supposed to use these things to store up for ourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, to take hold of that which is life indeed. So looking. Again, for, for eternity and the resurrection, life with God forever, not seeking to hold on to life here, but seeking to use whatever God has given us for, for his glory and the good of others, and then ultimately seeking to, to take hold of eternal life. So does that, does that help a little bit? Right? Yeah, that's good balance. It's, 
it's just really, it's just really hard for me to see that you know, hear people who who serve God and they suffer this way. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. It's one thing to you did the Sunday school series on you know, loss. It's yeah. one thing to, to go through emotional loss like that. It's another thing to 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 willingly lay on your life. Yeah. I, yeah. I think this is, and there's people throughout history that have done this. It's right. Just, um, right. I think it's just really hard to, to process that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I had put in my notes a couple of a couple of other anecdotes uh, along those lines. One was uh, uh, one was the, the English reformer John Hooper. Uh, Hooper uh, has been described as, as kind of a, a proto Puritan in that of all the uh, of all the early English reformers and early English bishops, he was he was the one who was uh, I would say most uncomfortable with. The Reformation as it stood in about 1550 in England, and he uh, kind of wanted to, to press things further on. And uh, he had spent probably about 10 years on the continent of Europe when it wasn't safe for him to be in, in England. And then when he was, was leaving, um, he had been hanging out in, in the Swiss city of Zurich with, with Heinrich Bullinger, and he uh, Bullinger had asked Hooper to write, tell us, tell us how things go when you get back to England. And Hooper said, yeah, I'll, I'll write. But the last news I won't be able to write because you shall hear it of me that I was burned to death. And sure enough, uh, that's, the way, that's the way that it turned out. And uh, so when, uh, uh, when Queen Mary came to the throne and uh, was seeking to revert England to Roman Catholicism, Hooper was one of those imprisoned. And uh, there's an account uh, given of a, uh, a man, I guess he was a knight of some, some sort, and uh, Hooper, as, as Bishop of Gloucester, had reproved this man for, uh, for adultery and um, had, had really kind of stood down on, on his case. And, of course, the man probably didn't, didn't like that too much, but, uh, but eventually, in God's grace, he came to repentance. And when Hooper was in jail, this man, Sir Anthony, went to, went to see him and he, he he tried to <laughs> tried to counsel Hooper to event, to essentially go along with go along with what's with what's happening here. You might prolong your life. You might do good. Kind of kind of in the same way that they're trying to to tempt this man Elazar to you know pretend and, and go along. And he said to him, "Consider that life is sweet and death is bitter. Life hereafter may do good." And Hooper said, "The life to come is more sweet, and the death to come." Is more bitter, and uh, so again, you see, you see the perspective. He recognizes that I'm going to have to stand before God and answer for for what I'm doing here and now, and the life life to come. This is this is better than uh, preserving my life here, and uh, and so yeah, it is it is a very uh, stark and uh, I'd say for most of us, probably all of us here, a very unfamiliar. Reality that uh, some people ancient and some people much more modern have had to have had to, to deal with and recognize. Okay, I might have to I might have to go to my death for this. Jamie. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, all right. I think. Oh, yeah. Go, go ahead. Yeah. 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 I think. I think uh, that what what Christ said about you know not worrying about how to defend yourselves, but it will be given to you in that moment what to say. I think. I think there's. Uh, there's a corresponding grace. Obviously, that's that's grace that's that's given to to God's people to uh, to speak in in their defense or to speak for Christ when uh, when necessity presents itself. And I think there's, like you say, a corresponding grace that that will be given to uh, to people who you know may not see themselves as the kind of person who says, "Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna stand up and face the mob and get killed and and all of all of this kind of thing." And yet, God uh, empowers. Powers the weak, and uh, and I think uh, her name uh, is escaping me. But one of the uh, one of the celebrated early martyrs from North Africa was uh, uh, was a woman who had uh, given birth while she was in prison. I think she was a slave girl, and she she gave birth in prison and. And the, the jailer, I guess, had watched her give birth and had seen her, her pain and agony of childbirth and had said, how are you going to stand in the arena when you know, they take you out to, to kill you and send the lion out after you or whatever? And, and she said, I think, you know, to speak to Jamie's point, she, she basically responded that, you know, what I, what I suffered here, this was me. But out there, I'm going to be suffering for the Lord and the Lord will sustain me. I, can't quote her exactly, but that's that's essentially what uh, what what she recognized that there's there's a difference between between me giving birth to a baby because I'm you know this is not me suffering persecution, but out there in the arena I'm going to be suffering for the Lord and the Lord will Lord will give me strength and grace uh, to to stand then. Um, any anything else? I uh, I don't know if we'll get through all of the all the scriptures, but uh, hopefully they're helpful uh, for you to have. Um, Anything else before we look at at least a couple of passages? Yeah, Jamie. Yeah, no, and I would, I, I would, yeah, I would with you make a make a big distinction between between what Corey Ten Boom was Corey Ten Boom was doing in denying that the Jews are, are in the house, you know, telling saying something that's straight up not true in that case versus uh, versus this guy Elazar being unwilling to to feign going along because because I think that's a big difference. If I think my my guess is um, that if if Corey Ten Boom had said, you know, had been commanded, give the Heil Hitler salute and say, I renounce Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I think she would have said, you've got to kill me now. I'm not doing that. I think, I think that that's, that's kind of the distinction um, uh, that, was, that, that, I would, that I would draw in, in her case. Um, but, but, yeah, it's a good, good point. Um, any, anything else, Tim? Yeah. 
Yeah, right. And uh, all was lowered in a basket, so yeah. you sort of had that number in too. Right, yeah, and so, and so escape and, and uh, trying, to, trying to sneak out, I've got, got no, no issues with, with that, yeah. Um, so, just in uh, in closing, um, we've, we're down about the last five minutes or so, and so um, I've, I've listed out uh, several Old Testament examples of uh, of suffering. We we know that, that Joseph told uh, Joseph ran away from immorality, and he gets thrown in prison. And uh, Hebrews eleven talks about how Moses chose to. Uh, to suffer with the people of God rather than enduring uh, the passing pleasures of sin uh, for a short time. And uh, Jeremiah, the book as a whole, talks about his uh, suffering, the oppositions. Jeremiah 20 uh, is a particular chapter highlighting some of that. Uh, Of course, we have uh, Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, before uh, Nebuchadnezzar's image and being thrown into the fiery furnace, being delivered. Uh, Daniel 6, Daniel in the lion's den. And, um, and I put in there as a summary for us Acts 7.52, because in Acts 7.52, Stephen uh, sums up the uh, situation of the Old Testament prophets and the, the sufferings that they endured, a lot of times at the hands even of the Jews, and so he says to them, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? In other words, persecution is the common lot of the prophets. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. And, uh, and so uh, Stephen is basically saying, you guys, you guys are always doing the same thing to, to the prophets. You persecuted and killed the Old Testament prophets. You persecuted and killed the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ. And sure enough, they would do the same thing to Stephen as well, persecute him and kill him. And, and the, uh, the teachings of, of Christ speak to us a lot about this. Um, so Mark 8 is uh, the passage where Jesus uh, says, take up, take up the cross. Luke 14 is the passage where Jesus speaks about counting Counting the cost and, and recognizing recognizing what is what is involved in in following him, and I do want to read though John fifteen eighteen through through sixteen four because I think this is a, a particularly helpful passage uh, in kind of dealing with with this subject. And so uh, Jesus says, "If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world." But I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning." 
And then I think, I think as we get to chapter 16, this is, this is especially helpful. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. And I think what's, what's particularly helpful is, is Jesus tells them, hey, they're going to they're gonna persecute you. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. And he says there, these things I've spoken so that you may be kept from stumbling. In other words, recognize that this is, this is what discipleship looks like. This is what it looks like to follow after me. And he, he says, these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. In other words, when, when persecution comes, we shouldn't be like, whoa, what, what is this? We remember, oh, Jesus told us about this. Jesus told us that we had to take up the cross. Jesus told us that we had to count the cost. Jesus said that if we uh, love father or mother more than him, we're not worthy of him. And, uh, and Peter, uh, Peter likewise, First Peter uh, chapter 4, um, he, uh, he says this. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or a thief, or as an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And so uh, Peter says, Peter says, don't be surprised. Jesus said, I told you all of this ahead of time so that you would you'd remember when it, when it happens. And, and again, it doesn't always happen to everyone in the same, in the same exact ways. And, um, and so we've got to seek to rejoice and be faithful with, with what God gives us, whether that's a relatively good and easy life here or whether it is a, uh, it's a painful life here. Even, even still, in that, we can, uh, we can, by God's grace, rejoice even in, in, even in sufferings. Um, it's not a, not a response of the flesh, but it is a response of uh, of that is certainly possible by the, the Holy Spirit working within us and strengthening us. So any, any closing comments? Yeah, Stan? I think the important takeaway from what you just read is that um, suffering for a moral issue right. is, is something that should be expected. <laughs> suffering for issues that aren't of moral importance yeah. does not bring glory to God right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we if we suffer uh, because because we're murderers or bad actors, thieves, what whatever, that's 
that's on you. That's not, that's not glorifying to the Lord. Um, and, uh, but if you suffer for the name of Christ, don't be ashamed of that. In other words, there is something to be ashamed of if you're suffering for these other, these other things. But if you're suffering as a Christian, that's a, that's a different story altogether. Um, anything, anything else? All right, well, with that, let's, let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you would give us grace for every day and every hour in which we live. We know that if we were left to ourselves, we would not endure uh, suffering. We would not endure hardship, uh, such as uh, this that we've read about this morning. Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us not to rely on ourselves, but to rely on you. Help us to, uh, to daily recognize your, uh, your great mercy to us and your great worthiness, how you are worthy of all of our lives and worthy of our faithfulness and our standing fast for you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you keep us, and that you would encourage us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.